0: Murtaza Hussein is a reporter at The Intercept who focuses on national security and foreign policy. He's appeared on CNN, BBC, MSNBC, and other news outlets. We had a sobering conversation about the political structure of the globalized world. And one of the many frank projections that Murtaza shares in the conversation is his sense that it's fairly likely that the United States and China will be engaged in some form of military conflict within the next 20 years. There's a deep analysis here that centers around a serious gap between the world that he wants and the world that he sees. And much of the conversation comes back to that gap between the moral aspirations that we might have as empathetic citizens of the world, the rights-based order we wish existed, and the inherently conflictual nature of the world as it is. He actually expands on the ways that a tradition of political philosophy engages with the extent to which nations are locked into efforts to constrain each other through force and dominance and suggests that refusing to grasp that means we miss a lot about the structure of societies. Again, he makes it clear that the world he reports on and tries to understand is not the one that he wants to exist, but I think it's for that reason that he reports on global affairs in the honest shrewd way that he does. I mean, in this conversation, he's talking in no uncertain terms about how Ukraine's decision to denuclearize, to not retain nuclear weapons, meant that they had to abandon the ultimate guarantor of national sovereignty. Given up under global pressure and the promise of incentives, you know, assurances that were not met, the loss of a nuclear arsenal, he feels, in part led to the current situation that Ukraine is facing where the international community has determined the cost of deterring Russia is too high and the country cannot fully defend itself against Russian aggression. What does it mean that this terrifying power is an insurance policy in the contemporary world? Ignoring the reality doesn't change it. And yet, as he points out, there are realities that can and are being ignored. While there's little evidence for sanctions actually contributing to a change in the behavior of governments, sanctions are still imposed without any real consideration for the social impact or political effectiveness they will have. As Hussein says, they're done without even thinking because no one is holding you to account, and the death that they produce is indirect. So in terms of the United States positing itself as a benevolent actor by imposing sanctions or even arming Ukraine, It's unclear whether anyone in the global community actually feels that it wipes the imperialist record of the U.S. clean just because it currently seems to be on the right side of a military conflict. What I found so profound too in what Murtaza was talking about here is that he over and over comes back to this question of establishing a moral baseline in a world torn apart. He says that there is clearly a, quote, grievous disparity between what lives are considered grievable or not. And that what this means is that outside of the political and epistemological boundaries of the nation state, we need to really think seriously about what our principles are beyond these vast imperialist power blocks. The alternative is a world where there is, again, quote him, there's a collective conspiracy of silence about human rights abuses because we're all doing it. You know, it's such a great opportunity in some ways to be able to speak with you about uh, the writing that you've been doing in general, but lately, you know, in in for the Intercept in relationship to uh, the war in Ukraine and the place of the United States in this contemporary battle for global hegemony. This seems to be like a special research interest almost that that is, is coming through in your, your work. Um, and on that point, I, you know, I, I read an interview recently in, in Jacobin with Walden Bello, the, uh, Filipino scholar and activist. Um, and in, in this interview, he says that the war is being used by the U S to regain its primacy as the global hegemon. Um, especially he says, you know, after the hit to the United States reputation, after its defeat, and withdrawal from Afghanistan, which he says was also a NATO defeat. Um, and so like this is just um, to me not not a main part of the sort of media narrative at all. The idea that at the at this kind of higher level, at this almost meta level of geopolitics, there's a kind of competition for global hegemony happening. So you know, I wanted to maybe ask you specifically about this article that you wrote recently about. Uh, the crisis in Ukraine, and this notion of a post-American world that is emerging. Like you talk about how um, there has long been an imperious relationship between Western elites and the rest of the world. I think, you know, people maybe understand that implicitly, uh, maybe not enough, I don't know. But you also talk about how like particular countries and regions of the world um, are, are um, you know obviously being perceived by the U S as kind of key in it, it, for the purpose of controlling China's growing power and how like these kinds of struggles are emerging in the wake of Russia's incursion now into um, Ukraine. Um, so I don't know if you could speak to that in general uh, maybe to start out on, I know it's a big question, but like this idea that like there are calculations being made In the global south around who to side with or or how to you know maintain a position of neutrality and how that itself is like calling into question the hegemony
1: of the united states yeah first of all well thanks thanks for having me on thanks for For sure yeah the interesting subject so i would say that you know it's interesting like uh, in the 20th century there were you know major blocks of powers aligned with either soviet union or The U.S. and Europe, uh, as the anchors that the U.S. uh, throughout the Cold War, and during that time, very early, it was determined that when after World War II ended, and it was clear that the Soviet Union and the U.S. were going to be at odds with each other for a significant amount of time, uh, a lot of countries around the world immediately calculated that this would not be in their interests to be aligned with either of these powers, which were both quite imperious in their own ways. Uh, They both wanted to use other countries for proxy wars or to exploit them for resources or put them under various forms of political control. And they sought ways to avoid that. And then through that, you had the emergence of what in the 20th century was called the non-aligned movement. The non-aligned movement was a movement of countries from uh, Asia and Africa, um, what we call the ASEAN world today, and uh, Latin America to some extent as well, too who sought to band together on the basis of uh, being neither right nor left, or rather, uh, not, not, neither U.S. or Soviet aligned in this, con- in this Cold War. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a very appealing and attractive uh, a position for a lot of countries. And what you've seen is that, you know, that, that there was like relative degrees of protection they're able to afford themselves, even countries which were Communists like these, Yugoslavia uh, was tried to chart a third path, but it was very difficult. It was very difficult, and what you found is that uh, many of these countries, nonetheless, ended up becoming parties to various, the rivalry between the U.S. and Soviet Union. And then, when the Soviet Union collapsed, you know that was kind of the end of it. That was a it seemed like okay. There's only one alternative now, which is uh, liberal capitalist democracy as defined by the United States, and you know i think it's interesting like you know i'm in my mid-30s and my whole life has been pretty much under the post-cold war world it's been under a world where unipolar power and the international system is taken as a default assumption but i think it's changing now i think it's changing because the us is still the most powerful country in the world and it's likely to be it's almost certainly going to be a very very powerful player in the world for a very very long time but its relative power is decreasing and to a level which is, would have been unimaginable perhaps in the early 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed and you see China is emerging as economic power it may surpass the US in the size of its total economy um years to come uh, India is also another country which is has huge demographic weight and is now gaining some degree of economic uh, and political power commensurate with that and, you know, you have a more strategically autonomous Europe, which is seeking to assert itself. You have a lot of countries. You have the BRICS countries, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Uh, you know, th- th- there, are, there are a lot of uh, rising powers around the world. And what that means is that, you know, these powers, once they get uh, economic power that's sufficient for them to provide themselves or exert influence, they're going to have their own views about foreign policy. And they're not going to want to be de facto looped into whatever the US wants to do at any given time. So I think what's interesting, what you see now with this Ukraine conflict is this, you know, the US has taken a very strong stance against Russia and what seems, I think it's correct to call Russian aggression against Ukraine at this time, and Western Europe as well too. Uh, and they seem to usually portray their own opinion, like the US and Western opinion as being the international community. "Quote unquote," but you're not really seeing that. You're seeing uh, that many other countries around the world are taking a far more nuanced position, not for any reasons of morality per se, but their interests are different. They're calculating their own interests just the way the U.S. calculates its own interests in determining what foreign policy to embark upon. Mm -hmm. You know, it's its own its own path. So you know, they weren't really able to do that in the 20th century. Countries weren't able to calculate their own interests. they had under a lot of pressure to align with either one of the two major blocks or align with a third block which is defined by the fact that it was not one of those blocks so you know now like india is not trying to seek created alliance of third powers which have a independent view on the subject they're just saying well no we want we have military ties with russia we have you know trade ties with russia and we're not going to drop that because you're telling us to because something bad is happening in ukraine that uh, is attributable to them. I saw actually an interview today with Brazilian, former Brazilian leader uh, Lula da Silva, and, you know, I don't necessarily agree with what he said, but he took a a line about the Ukraine conflict that is not the same line as the uh, the U.S. or EU position. on. He said that both sides were blamed for it, and he even suggested that Zelensky was more blamed for it than the Russian president. I don't agree with that, but, you know, Mm -hmm. that is... He's a major statesman of a major Latin American country, the anchor state of Latin America. And that view is not, is not unrepresented around the world. It's probably a prevalent view in a lot of places. And it's interesting. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but this one thing is a big difference from the world where it was taken the assumption that the views in D.C. Uh, would be normative for everyone else.
0: I think this is why the analysis is so invaluable. Is it's like it's trying to uh, stay with the murkiness of it in some ways, like and and acknowledging as Bello does in this interview that you you can't now create a unified anti-Russian alliance. It's just not going to work. In fact, he goes one step further and says everyone knows the U.S. is really using the Ukrainian crisis to reassert its hegemony. That is to say, everyone in uh, the developing world primarily is what he's talking about, right? Um, nations that, as you point out, um, in the 20th century were primarily not in charge of their own kind of destiny uh, or not able to make these kinds of autonomous calculations on their own behalf. And and I think so much of your writing is about trying to expose how these calculations are often on the basis of um, like you know, life and death considerations around how to feed your population, how to fuel your population, these kinds of things. Like you talk about, you know, there's a a phrase, for example, in the article where you write morality aside, there are concrete material reasons that, you know, Indians are choosing to keep ties with Russia. Um, And and you talk about like how how African countries are keeping ties partly due to food supply concerns. Um, And also secondarily, perhaps like The fact that russia represents a quote alternative to the west for investment and security support um so it's like it's really interesting for me to kind of think about the ways in which outside of this kind of uh uh, unipolar um you know world um morality and a kind of crude materialism are running side by side that like um you know there there are questions of material survival and then uh on the side as it were questions of morality you talk in the the article, about how, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of odd or ironic or ill-timed that the world is fractured in the way that it is, because as you put it, the American position on the war in Ukraine is built on a strong moral case. Um, And, you know, so are we now inhabiting in some ways like a post-moral universe where, you know, the nature of capitalism is, is, is that there is this level of instability and we have to kind of wrap our heads around first, those crude materialist kind of aspects of countries' calculations about how to position themselves politically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, uh, I'm not totally convinced that there was ever a moral, there was moral, compelling moral argument for the previous U.S.-led order. I think Mm. that there were, you know, very strong arguments and information campaigns that existed. Uh, and sometimes they're plausible, and sometimes they weren't. But I don't think that that was the primary lodestar of uh, U.S. policy making, even at the peak of the liberal order. Uh, you could say I, I do think I'm not saying that it's completely immoral. I just think that uh, it was probably exaggerated the degree to that to which that was a very salient calculation uh, in U.S. foreign policy decisions, mm. like freedom as morality in some sense. Yeah, yeah, the defense of human rights. i think Sure, were like, very very implausible but you know, it was a compelling narrative and it was a compelling Mm -hmm. aspirational narrative. And I do think that they paid lip service to it. And I actually think that the lip service, like I think people disagree with me about this in some cases, but I do think that lip service is sort of better than nothing because (laughs) at least, uh, you know, you're acknowledging the legitimacy of a particular moral position, uh, by which you could be theoretically shamed out of it or, uh, you're, you're setting a baseline for others' behavior, too. Even if your shown behavior does not live up to it, and to a degree. Is a, I think there's degree of hypocrisy which cannot be born anymore. And, you know, to see a world where there's a collective conspiracy of silence about human rights abuses, and everyone agrees it's not something to talk about, and it's not something to criticize others for because we're all doing it, uh, that would be worse. I think that that would be, in a marginal but significant way, it would be worse than a hypocritical... Uh, U.S.-led world order, Uh, there's a saying that uh, hypocrisy is the tribute that uh, vice pays to virtue. Mm -hmm. I think there's some truth to that. And, you know, this question, I think you made an interesting point about is this crisis being used to reassert U.S. hegemony? I think that something actually quite interesting is happening is that the reason that U.S. hegemony decreased over the last 20 years was because I think the number one reason for that is that. US elites were seen to be incompetent. So they kept ask, saying that they were going to deliver X, Y, Z thing. Uh, instead, they kept delivering disaster upon disaster. It was, you know, we saw this in Iraq and Afghanistan. Up, up to last summer, we saw this in Afghanistan. Uh, the mm-hmm. collapse of the Afghan government, it's humiliating defeats again and again, and apparent lies and failures. It's complete, like a whole generation's perspective was formed. Based on observing this, myself included. But, you know, something interesting in the last three months, you saw something which you haven't seen in a long time, which is that US security elites have looked pretty competent. And they've looked especially competent in comparison to Russia. They've correctly predicted things, events that were going to take place, uh, their logistical acumen has been demonstrated quite eff- effectively uh they've been made the Russians look really really bad in many many ways in the last uh, two three months and I think that the number one uh determinant of legitimacy of any system is not how ideologically coherent or moral it is it's the level of faith people have and that the elites behind the system are competent I'll give you another example I know I like a lot of people uh just Chinese citizens about this in the past and you know I talk about the Chinese Communist Party and these people are not communists, and they're not like they're completely ideologically agnostic, but and they don't like everything the government does, but they're like you know it's undeniable they've built all this infrastructure, it's undeniable that people have gotten richer, mm-hmm. so you know regardless of what they're doing, something they're doing something right. Um, so I mean, that's a compelling, I think that's the, the fact, the default most important uh, determinant. So I think that yeah, U.S. hegemony is being or U.S. influence you could say is being revived right now by the crisis in Ukraine. But I think it's because of their own uh, effective response to that crisis. If they'd responded ineffectively, if, if the Ukrainian government had completely folded immediately uh, the way that the Afghan government did in the face of the, an attack, right. the Russian attack, then I think that you'll be talking about how the en- empire is just completely over. we will be talking about, you know, getting the pitchforks out for U.S. elites because they clearly do not have any legitimacy or ability to govern, not because you know of any morals that's not really like aside aside from the point, aside from the morality of whatever happened just the fact that people were clearly idiots and they're getting all this money and they're just wasting it and they don't know what they're doing we have to get them out of here uh but that's not the case right now And you, in Europe you can see that effectively a lot of Europeans you know they're very glad that the U.S. is there because uh without the U.S. backing you'd be seeing a lot more Russian aggression beyond well, well beyond uh, ukraine
0: yeah no i think like that's that's again kind of like just an undeniable kind of uh empirical observation in some ways that you know um hegemony is dependent on whether you can demonstrate a certain kind of competence coordination like you've written on twitter about the united states again like morality aside being very capable in certain like logistical ways right like just being able to command a supply chain and being able to coordinate these kinds of things, um, being able to run a state effectively and provide power and these kinds of, you know, um, there's all kinds of chaos in the system at the same time, I think, Um, you know, in the, in the structure of the political system in the United States, for example, we're seeing the ways in which, you know, my God, like a a leak of a draft Supreme court decision can make a country erupt and and split apart. But in these times of, um, you know, geopolitical crisis, it's clear that, you know, a certain revolution in military affairs within the United States has bred uh, a logistical empire that makes, you know, just the kind of blunt force approach of Russia and Ukraine um, look silly in some ways, right? Like the force ratio question is secondary to a certain kind of technocratic power almost. Um, And on that point, you know, I wanted to uh, maybe ask you some questions about this book that you uh, recommended that I, I had some you know, some kind of issues with, certainly. Uh, But that is, like, undeniably insightful in terms of giving us a peek into the ways that the United States kind of almost perceives itself as a military power, you know, a a country that spends more on, um, you know, its defense budget than any other country by far. Um, The book is uh, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict by Elbridge uh, Colby. And, you know, it's, it's about... Um, you know, the, the ways in which the United States needs to adopt all kinds of strategies of, of really, he literally uses the term wrath, right? Like strategies of kind of imposing its military will on, on the world in order to prevent what Colby clearly fears is a, a rising Chinese hegemony. He says, you know, he calls it Chinese hegemony and its baleful influence at a certain point. Um, and there are all these kind. Of, and it seems to me like it's a book built in some ways around a uh, uh, a fever dream, a fantasy that may come to pass. Which is about, you know, he literally imagines all of the rest of the world's power aggregated against the United States and then coercing uh, the U.S. And you know, I wondered, you know, wh- what you gained, I guess, in some ways from reading that book, and and in particular, like you know, as a journalist, how you incorporate research um like this uh you know into your own writing like you are reading this kind of scholarly literature on international politics and you know it is separate i have to assume from your own politics and you keep it probably you know in the margins of your writing but like this is a book that literally you know talks bluntly about the states that matter most and ranks continents by degree of power and how advanced their economies are and so on Without any real consideration throughout the book of of like morality, there's no real engagement with like justice or decolonization or climate change. Like, those are not considerations for Colby. Really, he fundamentally says, um, might is right, you know? Um, and, And so, like, what did you, I guess, gain from reading that book and how does it sort of help you understand the world? Like, a book like Strategy of Denial. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I, I try to read as broadly as possible. I don't think I need to per se for work. I just find that it makes, gives you a better, deeper understanding of, uh, you know, it's good to read everyone's perspective and to know where I was mm-hmm. coming from and also historical context is also good. And you know, it's interesting. It's like, you're absolutely right. That book has no discussion about, uh, it's an amoral perspective on these subjects and it uh, takes a certain, a certain configuration of the world for granted. And, you know, it's a specific uh, historical tradition of politics that goes back all the way to Thucydides, who's a famous Greek historian, and in, wrote a famous book called the History of the Peloponnesian War. And that book was about you know, the war between the Greek city-states many thousand years ago and taken, take, took, as, took an assumption for granted that the world is by nature conflictual. And rising powers, which are constrained by other powers, which will will inevitably uh, seek to free themselves from the constraints of those powers by force. And that's how uh, Athens and Sparta came into conflict with one another. And there is a lot, like a lot of people, U.S. elites are classicists or people who are educated in the classics. And they pretty... Well, understandably, based on that parallel, they view the situation between Athens and Sparta as analogous to that between the U.S. and China. And in this book, as you described it, it's basically, it's a, you know, do everything you can to constrain, how do we constrain China's rise? What are, what are the options? Every option, every time frame, how do we do that? And what are the, what realistically are the stakes for the United States? According to this gentleman, mm-hmm. if we fail to do that. And, you know, there are things in that book you mentioned. Like it just—it's like kind of glosses over. It takes things very, very simplistically in some ways for purposes of an analysis. And you know, the things I don't like—the things that I personally—I have opinions. I have like opinions about. Uh, you know, I, I'm not one of the uh, the book. The book talks about creating an anti-hegemonic alliance in Asia to work together to constrain China's rise, because it is true that a lot of countries in Asia are very, very afraid of the implications of a Chinese superpower because they're right next to China and China is his past uh in the last century is past uh behavior with, at times it has power has been very bullying so they have a lot of interest in having another power come balance them so for instance he wants to have one of the countries as the anti-hegemonic uh one of the anti-hegemonic powers to be India and India mm-hmm. is going through a lot of changes right now the government is extremely far right and hostile to minorities, and, you know, all the things China's doing in that sense, they're doing it maybe like as much or more. And, you know, but the book takes it for granted that just set all that aside, are they powerful? Are they powerful enough that they can help us stop this other power? And if so, then that accomplishes our goal. And that's what we're looking at here. So is that like the world that I would love to see or want to see or aspire to see? (laughs) No, it's, it's not. But that said, I do think that It's kind of the way the world is, in a way, arguably, not all times, but many times. And it doesn't mean that it has to be that way, but to not uh, engage with it or to not understand it, I think it would result in missing a lot of what takes place in the world, uh, misunderstanding uh, what's actually happening and so forth. If the US were to assemble, if they had a more, you know, actually, I will say that the US actually used more arguments to make its argument against China. I think cynically to some degree, like for instance, the Uyghur issue is something that's been brought up a lot by U.S. elites. I don't think that they actually care about this issue that much, but I do think that it's an issue which they know has moral resonance with people. Okay. They're making human rights of China an issue. They're using it cynically because they have a rivalry with China for other reasons, but maybe there's some good in that because it might help some people. And also it, it sets an international baseline that, you know, human rights are something you might get shamed for if you're in the, depending on your circumstances. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think that it's just I think this is very likely that the world will play out this way. And I think on a time frame, not that I think it's good, not that I think that should play out this way, or I think that it is not avoidable. I think it is avoidable. But I think it's very, very likely that US elites and Chinese elites are gonna determine that their interests are completely at odds with each other. Uh, I think that they're both rational and there's not any realistic chance of nuclear war between the US and China but if there is not a limited war in Asia between Asian countries and against China with the US supporting in the next few decades I'll be very surprised I'll be very surprised
0: right
1: and because they're all talking about it they're all talking about it. they're all concerned about it not because they hate China per se but because it's inevitably it's inevitably conflict when a new superpower emerges it's like I'll give you an example when Latin America when the Monroe Doctrine was fomented in Latin America there was not really any chance for the Latin American countries to resist that. They had no chance to resist this effectively, at least, and there was no outside power uh, which could have helped them band together or arm them, or something that they could have preserved their uh, fully their territorial integrity and sovereignty against the United States Empire as it emerged. These Asian countries are in a very similar situation to the countries of Latin America at that time, and. They do kind of have a chance they do kind of have a chance because you know they have collectively a lot of more wealth than Latin America at that time and they have an outside force which is the US in this case which is also on the same page and willing to arm them so I think that is a very important uh, important understand and um I think that alternative sources of world order or movements based you mentioned on climate change is also I think a very promising idea I think that could uh that could also be another way that people organize themselves and according to shared interests across borders. Yeah. And I hope to see that emerge, but it's not the most uh, likely thing at this point. And it gives you no pleasure to say
0: that. No, I hear you. Um, and like, this is something I gained from the book. I mean, as much as the book sort of upset me, like I think it's, I, I wrote to you that it, it made me realize how utopian I am, like how much I just want to believe that these things don't exist. Um, the insistence by Colby that we should not expect the contemporary environment to be different is eye-opening. Like that's literally how he puts it. Um, you know, it's it's like my critique would be that it does accept a certain kind of like imperial fatalism almost. Like it doesn't really imagine, like it, it it doesn't engage in good faith in a way with like the possibility of revolt almost, like global climate revolution, right? Which is something that would be a radical event that is hard to even imagine being an eventuality at this particular point. Melanie Yazzie, who I interviewed for the podcast, who's an indigenous revolutionary um, uh, who who, uh, works at uh, University of New Mexico, you know, she literally asks at the end of my conversation with her for us to imagine that the United States did not exist. (laughs) asks you to imagine the United States not existing as a way out of this kind of hurtling toward climate catastrophe, but like that is you know uh, obviously utopian in some ways, um, a kind of you know uh, anti-imperialist utopia for for many people. Uh, you know the United States must, as Colby puts it, deter or defeat Chinese aggression. It, it must, right, in this kind of hegemonic play of forces. Consider how to leverage Japan, for example, to embrace militarism. This is an argument Colby makes at the end of his book. It needs, like in this kind of compulsive, fatalistic way, to embrace, um, you know, uh, as he puts it, following Russia up the nuclear ladder if necessary, like using nuclear weapons as a suitable implement of deterrence. These are this is the kind of language he uses. So there is just like a blunt realism in the book that is it kind of just, it kind of strengthens your critical muscles to have to engage with that particular kind of realism. Um, But I guess, you know, on that question of, of, you know, and I I think this is, you know, one of the more florid phrases in Colby's book, you know, following Russia up the nuclear ladder. um, I wanted to ask you about the article you wrote on, you know, itself kind of espousing a certain kind of political realism in which you argue basically, you know, small countries, that retain a nuclear deterrent are protecting themselves. Like we have to, you know, just engage with the fact that, you know, as as the title of the article puts it, breaking promises to small countries means they'll never give up their nukes. Um, could you kind of maybe, um, just you know, break down uh, what that article is saying in terms of you know why certain countries might consider it to be a smart calculation to do this thing that most people would say is, is absolutely absurd. Like, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois said like the cause of war is preparation for war. You know, the cause of nuclear war will be the preparation for following other countries up the nuclear ladder. But how is that now in some ways inescapable in the current moment?
1: So, you know, the, the article, it takes uh, Ukraine as an example, and at the collapse of the Soviet union, you know, a lot of Soviet nuclear weapons were had been stationed in Ukraine. And when the Soviet Union unraveled, they were still there. And the silos were there and the weapon the warheads were there and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the newly independent Ukrainian government had a choice. And the choice was effectively that you know they could keep these weapons, and doing that would require a significant amount of investment in maintenance upkeep, even if they scaled down the size of the arsenal. The arsenal, I think, was a fourth biggest in the world at the time that they they aim independent maybe third biggest um mm-hmm. it was it was quite substantial and you know they decided they, they considered it they definitely considered keeping the nuclear weapons uh, because Ukraine if you look historically has been threatened by Russia a lot they have a very unhappy history with Russia the 20th century uh, Soviet Union you know, very very uh, terrible well documented crimes in Ukraine and so they were very jealous and guarded of about their independence for fear of something like that happened again and they had to make a choice because nuclear weapons are the ultimate guarantor of independence one way or another they've shown them to be themselves in the last seventy years or so uh, not not a very pleasant guarantor but certainly they guaranteed it so they had a choice they said that you know we can keep these or we could uh, give them up and There was a lot of pressure and a lot of incentive as well, too, to give them up from Western countries as well as Russia. They said, look, give them up. We'll sign all these treaties. We'll guarantee that no one will ever attack you again. We'll protect your sovereignty. Uh, We just want you to not proliferate nuclear weapons and to get rid of them, put them under, uh, you know, transfer them out of the country, effectively. Mm -hmm. And they did that. And lo and behold, the other countries did not live up to the side of the bargain. I think maybe they would like to in the ideal world, but the cost is just too high to confront russia in 2014 and it's too high to confront russia directly today the us and no other countries going to war directly on ukraine's behalf and in russia and good that they're not doing that would be a horrible risk but they're not doing it and that's not very good for ukrainians so you know effectively they kind of got burned and there is like i'll tell you an example like a. In Pakistan, Pakistan is a poor country. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. It has nuclear weapons for several several decades now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was kind of determined that the country's elites determined that, look, we have a mortal threat, an enemy, which is a mortal enemy, which is India. And we cannot, this country will not, may not survive very long. People are more suspect to India. We don't really have a lot of allies. We're much smaller than they are and you know they're developing nuclear weapons or I mean, even if they didn't develop nuclear weapons it would still be the same calculation but similar calculation but they said well look we need are we going to survive or we're going to die that was kind of what they said there's a famous quote by the uh uh the prime minister at that time he said that you know if we have to eat grass to get nuclear weapons we'll, we'll eat grass and kind of did they kind of did that to uh, suffer a lot of sanctions and other things in order to get this thing which nonetheless has protected the pakistani state from uh, collapsing or being further dismembered, they actually lost half their territory before a few years before they made this decision uh, in Bangladesh. But you know, it, it's an insurance policy against attack. Is it good that there's a world where nuclear weapons exist? I don't really think so. I think it's a terrible thing, it's terrifying, the idea that uh, you know a deliberate or accidental launch of nuclear weapons could kill millions of people, could theoretically end human civilization uh very very quickly there were some near misses during the cold war between the u.s and russia and it's not out of the question that something like that could happen again either between the u.s and another country or other countries amongst themselves and to a degree the amount of proliferation increases the amount of risk of accidental exchange but if you're a small country no one's going to defend you and that's the reality of it no one's defending small countries in the world that exists today if they're attacked by a big country. What's the only way of deterring a big country from attacking you? There's only one way. There's one way if you make them so afraid that attacking you would set off a chain of consequences, they'll destroy all their cities and take away everything they want. They want they're gonna be a lot more careful. And again, it's one of those things which is like a, it's realistic, it's a grim reality, it's an unfortunate reality, but it's hard to tell a country that yeah. you know, you don't need this. You know, Israel, for instance, Israel has nuclear weapons.
0: Right. But they have this policy of deliberate ambiguity around it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's like become farcical at this point, but like yeah, yeah, they don't fully admit it, but they they have, everyone knows they have nuclear weapons, and you know it's I think it's good Israel has nuclear weapons. I think it's terrible. I think that they have this thing called the Samson Doctrine, which if mm. they ever feel that their territorial integrity was morally threatened, they would fire nuclear weapons at the capital cities of all the surrounding countries. It's a very like uh, extreme and horrifying scenario. But, you know, from their perspective, it kind of makes sense in a way, because who's going to guarantee their security? I think the U.S. probably would guarantee their security, but who knows in the long term? They are the ultimate guarantors of the security. Now, as a small country who all your neighbors don't like you, that is the only real guarantee. So again, setting aside the morality of it, I don't like the morality of it, but I do think that, you know, the Ukrainian leaders now, they're talking about what they did in the 90s and they're openly kicking themselves. They're saying this is a huge mistake. We got completely screwed over by the world. We were a small country. We believed in all these rules that other big countries would protect us from aggression. And guess what? They actually didn't. And why do we even expect differently? We should have kept those nukes. If we had, maybe we wouldn't be seeing thousands of our citizens dying every week.
0: It's. I mean, it is stunning. It is like it is chilling, right? To have to engage with these things, but it doesn't benefit anyone for us not to actually, I think, you know, confront the reality. And basically, you know, there's there's uh, discrepancies, for example, around Taiwan. Like Taiwan is seen as a, a key um, kind of fulcrum of global power. Um, the United States would step in to defend Taiwan against Chinese aggression. The other option would be for Taiwan to sort of arm itself with nukes to prevent um, that sort of aggression. But there is no scenario in which it, it, it can be sort of apathetic about its security. And that is, you know, another thing that the Ukraine crisis is bringing to the, the fore is the fact that now, you know, there is a massive increase in military spending as a result. You know, Europe has has gone, Germany especially, has gone, uh, you know, down and down in terms of its its military spending. Um, you know, it's it's constantly been, you know, reducing its military spending, but now that is trending in the opposite direction. And the, the other thing I guess I wanted to ask you about is this question of uh, sanctions. Uh, so unlike Taiwan, Ukraine is sort of on its own. And the way that the United States is trying to target Russia is through a kind of economic warfare. And you, you've written about how You've written this article basically subtitled, you know, a warning about civilian harm of uh, sanctions that notes, you know, the Russian people didn't elect to go to war. And that, as you put it, what is not happening is a targeting of the Russian high tech and defense sectors, but a targeting of the entire Russian economy. Like you're basically advocating in this article that sanctions be targeted and proportional and reversible. Like you're talking about sanction reform. Um, and similarly, you know Tony wood in his book Russia without Putin talks about how generally speaking sanctions targeting um you know a, an entire country's economy confuse as he puts it a symptom for a prime cause um so I wondered if you could like speak to um your in some ways moral objection to sanctions but then also the ways in which like you're objecting to even the efficacy of sanctions i mean you' you're saying like there are these long-term economic effects, but it's also the case that they're just factually ineffective, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what is the goal, theoretically, of sanctions when they're imposed? The goal is to change the behavior of a government that's being sanctioned. Mm-hmm. Is there Do we have a lot of evidence of cases where that's been the case? It's actually happened. It's actually worked that a government which has been sanctioned has stopped doing the thing that uh, we don't want them to. Like, I don't see a ton of examples. Uh, maybe Libya was one partial example uh, before the Libyan government was you know, deposed not that long after, which kind of undercut it a bit. Uh, there are not like tons of examples of a country being under placed under extreme sanctions to change its behavior. We have far more examples of uh, countries which were sanctioned uh, where the people suffered a lot, where there was a uh, huge uh, humanitarian crises as a result of sanctions and where nothing after that, all that changed that much. So, you know, there's a big disjuncture. I think that the problem is is that, you know, it's very easy to put sanctions. It's not easy to send troops somewhere. So if you have a, a call to do something in response to some uh, country which is doing something the U.S. doesn't like, you know, there's a strong call for something to be done as a, in response to that, then it's very politically easy to slap sanctions on them. That's, like, the mm-hmm. easiest thing. You can sanction them. Sending, you know, troops is harder because, you know, people may die. And then the American people will have some more insight into that. You know, they'll be, they'll know about it. They don't even know about sanctions, really. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's a little bit different. It's very easy to do sanctions, politically easy. And it's become so easy that it's done without even thinking, so to speak. You could say it's done without even the slightest uh, concern about the effect of it. You, You don't even have to be successful. In the sanctions. You don't have to be successful in the sanctions at all. You can be unsuccessful and it doesn't really matter. No one's holding you to account. So I think it's just become very easy. And then, you know, because the deaths from sanctions are indirect, like who's going to notice if uh, people are starving to death in a country which people can't find on the map? Or mm. who's going to notice if, uh, you know, people in a country who used to be middle class are now very, very poor? you know, it's not going to come to people's attention uh, that much as, as it would if there were killings taking place at the hands of U.S. troops, for instance. Mm-hmm. So effectively, you know, I think, I think that's the main, uh, the main reason. They're overused. And if you look at the record, uh, these overuse of despite being, you know, nonviolent, quote unquote, uh, these sanctions do kill a lot of innocent people and they're very indiscriminate. And look, this is war in Ukraine happening right now. You know, uh, my personal opinion is that is very wrong, and the Ukrainian government and people should be supported in defending themselves against and clearly it's aggression and invasion by another country, probably the most naked form of aggression you can get. Uh, I don't think that the correct, I don't think it'll be an effective response, really. It's a non sequitur to just turn around and make sure so the Russians can't, uh, you know, withdraw from their bank accounts, um, you know, in, in X number, X amount of time. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's very easy to do. I think what it would make more sense is to do something which changes the uh, order of battle or changes the uh, changes circumstances on the battlefield in Ukraine, which the Biden administration is doing, which is arming the Ukrainian army. I think yeah, that's much more preferable. I, I'm not in favor of arming irregular militias like Azov, Battalion, or what have you. I think that's mm-hmm. very dangerous you start arming not irregulars. But as long as it's a legitimate central government, which has legitimacy in Ukraine, then you know like, arming it is not an insane response to a situation when the war has already begun they're not beginning the war
0: yeah i mean that's it's definitely hard to um argue against i've heard you know people try to make a uh, coach an argument against arming ukraine um you know the fact that it's not going through the proper channels that you kind of gesture to that like it may, it may be going to into the wrong hands um but it's, it's hard to, and also the fact that you've got this, um, you know, a boon for the defense industry, you know, uh, Raytheon and, and these companies are, are talking openly about how it's a windfall for them and so on. But at the same time, if there is this naked aggression, how do you repel it? It's just a blunt fact. Um, you know, I, I guess the thing that I feel like I, I should ask you about is the, the question of to what extent... Um, there is this kind of hypocrisy with regard to kind of the grievability almost of lives, as some theorists have put it, right? So, you know, you talked about the cost of sanctions in, in countries like Iran, Afghanistan, Venezuela, and Yemen, where you've got economies collapsing and huge numbers of people starving. Um, and, and the fact that sanctions are far away and calculated through this kind of like demographic research rather than through direct, the kind of war of images, as it were, And so there's there maybe is not enough pressure because of that for the U.S. to reform its sanctions regime. And and, you know, part of that uphill battle um, for, for many people in, you know, in African countries and in South America is is actually trying to make visible the extent to which a certain kind of ethno nationalism or racism is at the heart of the United States backing Ukraine in the way that it is. Right. So. The fact that racism, uh, there's been racism against African refugees trying to escape Ukraine. There's been uh, a real disregard for Palestinian life, for, you know, the people of Yemen. You know, the the United States is not, for example, rejecting uh, energy from or oil from Saudi Arabia, but it is, you know, sanctioning Russia and so on. Could you, do, you know, we've made a, a habit in this conversation of dealing with particularly problematic and tricky issues. This, to me, is the hardest one in some ways to negotiate. This question of how the world is still stratified in terms of geopolitics by uh, uh, questions of, of racial belonging. How do you see that kind of playing out in in this war going forward, and how? You know, how is this how is this war kind of exposed that for the rest of the world?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a very, very good question. It's an excellent question. And it's something I've been thinking about quite a bit since it started. I, there's absolutely a double standard. It's not Double standard is an under really understanding it. There's a grievous, uh, it's a grievous disparity between what lives are considered grieva- uh, grievable or not um and it's clearly there's a racial and cultural tracking towards it as well too if i were to steel man the argument i would say that you know of course uh, westerners care about uh, the lives of other westerners or people who they perceive as westerners more because there's cultural affinity and historic affinity and this proximity and so forth and if you look at the middle east or africa middle easterners and africans they also care about people in proximate countries more than they do about this people I think there's some truth to that, but there's also, there's this, you know, there's like this hypocrisy where when it's convenient, you could say that U.S. elites will say that, you know, we speak for all humanity when we speak. They they take that position when it's convenient. And when it's not convenient, then they pivot and say that, well, obviously we care about our own people more than other people. And, you know, it's very, uh, it's very like slippery sort of uh, reasoning. I, I think that we have to step back and we have to just look at what are our principles what are our principles here independent of what the u.s or the u.s elites think or do uh in their own circumstances they do something which are right something which are wrong we'll leave it at that that's their own problem they have to figure that out what do we believe we believe that okay we have a principle that a country should not be menaced by another country that's the case if it's you're talking about uh two african countries in conflict with each other it's the case we're talking about two european countries in conflict as the case we're talking about to Middle Eastern countries in conflict or Latin American countries. A large country should not invade another country. You should not settle its differences with another country by force. That's something which we think is wrong. And, okay, if that's wrong, then we have a principle that guides us. And if they're inconsistent in applying it, and if they're, you know, racistly dismissive of uh, things happening in other parts of the world, then that's their problem. That's they're, they're wrong for that. And we'll tell them they're wrong for that. But we're not going to be wrong because they're wrong. That's kind of the way i think about it and also like i think that i just cannot take it seriously the fact that you know the u.s after all these years of being the bad guy 20 20 years of being the bad guy in the eyes of most of the world being up these small countries killing all these people very wantonly you know, without any uh accountability or regard, still waging economic warfare against innocent people in afghanistan iran many other places you know, they're not the, they can, the idea that they are portraying themselves as the good guys now because they happen to be on the right side of the conflict in the eyes of a lot of people, then that's just laughable. It's a laughable perspective. They're not, no one in the global south can see the US as a benevolent actor in the world after what we've seen for many, many years, even predating the, the war on terror. They may be a benevolent actor in Europe, you could can, can argue, but that, that's, that's for Europeans' perspective. It's not, no one else takes that seriously. No one can take it seriously. Right. So yeah, we, we should dismiss that. But let's dismiss that and let's put them aside and let's focus on what we think is moral. Mm-hmm. And I think that in this case, that would be to show the solidarity or even to say that, you know, if you want to take arms from the US to defend yourself against Russia, people of Ukraine, it's a completely understandable decision and I'm not gonna stand in the way of that. I think that makes sense, given your circumstances. And, you know, we'll monitor and we'll also highlight the racism and the double standards that are apparent and which you just discussed in your own own comments, uh, Scott, so.
0: No, yeah, it's helpful. helpful. It kind of, you know, it it connects back to what you were saying around, like, having some moral baseline is better than nothing. And I think, like, so much of the problem seems to be, like, when you align with a certain narrative of national belonging, Uh it's it becomes really like untenable to maintain any like moral baseline right because suddenly you have to buy into everything that a nation like symbolically stands for um and nations themselves like as zygmunt bauman put it are, are kind of you know a community of accomplices they're almost always wrought through violence um and so you know having a moral baseline as a community as a culture as a people as a person um, maybe is more tenable than trying to align with like something as big amorphous and amoral as a nation. I don't know. Um, but anyway, thanks so much for uh, making the time. It was really great talking to you.
1: Well, those are really great questions and really, uh, really fun discussion.